Hey family, welcome to another edition of the Revolutions Within Us podcast. It's your host, Dr. Shamar Charles. And I hope you've all had a happy, healthy, and productive month since we last spoke. Today, we have with us an absolute treat, two-time All-American, NBA champion, and San Antonio Spurs legend. Sean Elliott is in the building with us today. He's going to chop it up with us. What's up? What's up? What's happening, doctor? I'm doing <laughs> I'm doing fantastic. I, I appreciate it. Um, Sean, you know, at the Revolutions Within Us, we make no assumptions of what people know or what people don't know. So I just want you to tell us a little bit about your upbringing, um, how you became interested in basketball, your playing career, what you got going on now. Just tell us a little life update. Uh, well, I was uh, brought up in Tucson, Arizona, born and raised in Tucson, um, had a a great uh, upbringing, had a great mother and father. They got divorced early, but, you know, they were uh, very cordial toward each other and uh, had two older brothers who uh, beat up on me on the playground uh, <laughs> most of the time uh, and, you know, really taught me uh, the ropes. Uh, you know, I was a kid, Dr. Charles, who uh, played every sport. I, I played everything uh, that I could possibly do. Um, you know, I played... Uh, baseball. I was a soccer player. Um, I dabbled in tennis a little bit. Wow. Uh, when my mom took it up, I'd play with her a lot. I uh, ran track, uh, did the long jump, the 220, uh, the the um, 440. You know, I did uh, pretty much anything uh, that was, you know, activity-based. Oh, and man, so, you're Mr. All-American. Yeah, I mean, I, I, <laughs> that's what I, I love to do. You know, I, I just love to stay active. And my poor mother, you know, she was uh, you know, trying to raise three boys. And so she, most of the time was dropping me off at a practice and, Hey, go do your thing and let me get some rest for a little while. Right. Uh, because I was the rambunctious one. You know, I was the, I was the troublemaker. I was the, uh, one who, you know, got my brothers, uh, the two brothers in trouble because I always would persuade them to do something they shouldn't do. So I had, she had to get me out of the house. And so, you know, a lot of days spent uh, on the field at the boys and girls club, at the YMCA, I mean, that was my whole upbringing. It was all about sports. And, and so for me, you know, I gravitated toward basketball more so in late in junior high school, about my eighth grade year. And then my freshman year in high school is where I really started to focus on basketball because I it, that started to take over for me more than anything else. When you were doing all of those different sports and now you're like, I'm pretty good at basketball. Like at what point did you make have to make a decision that basketball was going to be the singular sport that you were going to go after? Well, I think several things led me in that direction. Uh, you know, I, I had a uh, my freshman year in high school. Uh, we were four and 13. I was on the worst freshman team in the city. Uh, I, you know, I was a pretty decent player. Uh, but it, I don't think anybody was pointing at me and looking at me like I was going to do something uh, with basketball, uh, you know, throughout high school and maybe in the college and after that. But the day after my uh, uh, last game as a freshman was Saturday morning was soccer. And so I started the soccer season and that first half of the, of the first game of the season, I was coming down the field and a kid came in and did a slide tackle on me and I tore my ACL, my left knee. Wow. So that took me out of sports for the, for the rest of the spring season. Uh, I had to get it, uh, surgery to repair it. Uh, and so for me, uh, soccer kind of ended 
right then. Uh, baseball uh, wasn't really an option for me. I was more concerned with just getting back on the basketball court, to be honest with you, because I just, even though we didn't have a good team, I just, something that I love to do. I love to play in pickup games, uh, love to shoot around. And so, uh, you know, I did everything I could to try to get back to playing basketball. And I, I think that's that kind of cemented it for me. Well, ACL tears, you know, when this happened, I'm, I'm assuming that this happened sometime in the 80s, right? Like, yeah, an early ACL, 80s. right, early 80s. So an ACL tear back then could have been catastrophic for you. Did you think about that at all when when the injury happened? Like, oh, my gosh, like my just sports career may, may be over oh, yeah, even well, before well, it started. I yeah, well, my doctor told me at the time, he's an orthopedic surgeon, he said that I would never play basketball again. That that was his exact wow. words. He said, you'll never play basketball again. Uh, you know, when I show people my scars, because obviously, you know, ACL surgeries come a long way. Uh, I have a huge, you know, scar on my left knee along the inside. And then I have a scar on my left side where they actually shorten my um, IT band uh, just to keep my knee... Uh, stabilized so it was a major thing back then it wasn't like it is now and matter of fact uh when i got uh when i woke up from surgery i was in a cast from the it, my groin all the way down to the tip of my toe my entire wow. leg was in a cast and i was in that cast for two months Shoot. in that position and so again you know now acl surgery they have you rehabbing that same day after surgery i had this big cast for two months and the crazy thing about it is uh, I got my cast off on a Monday. Uh, my doctor said he wanted me on crutches for two months, walk around with crutches for two months. Saturday, I was playing basketball at the Y. Wow. Yeah. But then I, you know, I tweaked it a couple times, uh, you know, because it wasn't strong enough. Uh, twisted it a couple times and I had to go in twice to get my knee drained. And the doctor, you know, Obviously, he wasn't thrilled because I wasn't following directions. And at that time, my mom just decided, she said, I'm going to take you to a sports medicine doctor. And they put me in um, a knee brace. It was a Lenox Hill knee brace. And I was so proud of it because it was the brace that Joe Namath wore. And that's what I was telling everybody. Oh, this is the brace that Joe Namath Highway Joe. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I wore that brace uh, all through high school. And then I switched to a different company all through college. And, and until my uh, the end of my rookie year in the NBA. So, you know, when people see me playing college basketball, I had this big knee brace on and I wore it all the way up until my second year in the league when I finally took it off. So uh, it was a it was a thing that I was known for. All my, all my buddies would say, yeah, we see you walk on the court with a knee brace. You're like, this guy, what's this guy doing out here with this big brace? <laughs> and then I could run and jump with it. And they were like, I mean, this guy can, you know, he can run and jump. Right. With they thought you were playing coy. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So, you know, it was a, it was a, you know, I've just, I was the type of kid that if you told me I couldn't do something, then I was going to show you that I could do it. And so, right. you know, the doctor told me I wasn't going to play again. Well, you know, week, not even a week after I got my cast off, you know, I was trying to play pickup games at the YMCA. That is incredible. And for those of you who are listening, I just want I just want you to put this into context. When someone is in a cast for two months, they atrophy. Atrophy is yeah. just a fancy word for muscle wasting. Like they lose muscle during that time. So to be able to get back to a place where you're not just running, but you're also jumping and you're doing all of the cardio and you are participating competitively is absolutely incredible. 
Yeah, my leg was really skinny when I got it out. It had atrophied big time. Uh, but I, I remember when I got it off that Monday, my mom had to go to a meeting uh, at a hospital and I was waiting for her. And all I did was just try, you know, bending it or straightening it out, walking down the hallway. And in two or three days, I was able to walk, uh, but it had no strength. I mean, I it really didn't have any strength. So, you know, I didn't go to rehab or anything like that. I just tried to do stuff on my own to try to get my leg strength back, which is uh, pretty stupid at the time, but, <laughs> you know, it worked out. When we're young, we all do stupid things. Yeah. But I got to tell you that now, looking back at it, and even from my perspective of hearing your story, it, it goes to show that you always had a warrior spirit. It's kind of something that is part of your narrative and your story. We're obviously here to talk about kidney disease in honor of National Kidney Month. I want you to take us a little bit through like the beginning of your medical journey, especially as a uh, you know kidney disease survivor. Um, right. Take us through the 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 very beginning of that that journey and and maybe even tell us a little bit about like you know that that kind of you coming into the league right because you didn't come into the league and everything was perfect you got drafted by the spurs you moved around you went to detroit you know like tell us a little bit about the beginning uh part of that journey yeah well you know uh i would have to say that my journey began even before i knew it uh i i was you know i had high blood pressure on my very first physical, like at 11 or 12 years old, I had high blood pressure. And the, the doctors would tell me, oh, we think you have white coat syndrome. You know, meaning you walk into the doctor's office, you see these guys walk in with white coats and you get nervous and your blood pressure is elevated. Well, no, I, I had high blood pressure as long as I can remember. Wow. Long as I can remember. And so uh, that was untreated for years. And so everything I think came to a head at the end of the 92, uh, 93 season. We had just lost to the Phoenix Suns in the playoffs. Uh, I was a little down about it. I think more than a little down. And I came back home to Tucson for a couple of weeks to hang out with my friends. And I noticed that every morning I woke up, my hands were really swollen, really tight. Uh, my legs were retaining water. Like you could take your fingers and press them into uh, my shin bone area. And that imprint would stay there for oh, um, pitting edema. Yeah, oh pitting my edema. gosh. That's yeah. insane. Uh, wow. Yeah. A lot of water, you know, I, I'd go out and play golf with my friends and, you know, I'd have those footy type of socks on. And then I'd get home and take that, my socks and shoes off. And it looked like I had a pirate leg, you know, that's wow. what my friends would say, you know, you'd have that edema that would stop right where my sock was. And it just looked weird, but I felt you know really lethargic. And then finally, when I returned home to San Antonio, I I uh, woke up one morning and I had trouble opening my eyes. There was my face was so swollen, and so at that point I said, "Okay, that's you know something's not right." And I went to the doctor. Uh, they took obviously took urine samples. Uh, I had a lot of protein uh, that I was spilling into my urine, and uh, at that time they said, "Okay, well." We need to refer you to a nephrologist just to make sure, you know, you don't have anything serious. Uh, at that time, you know, they uh, nephrologist took a kidney biopsy and they ordered a 24-hour urine test. And at that point, I was spilling about 22 grams of protein a day into my urine. 
And oh my gosh. Yeah, and my biopsy uh, came back as they, they thought I had what was called minimal change disease. So I, I you know, just they look at my, the, my kidney tissue under a microscope and thought there, you know, there was just minimal change. So I got treated with about 80 milligrams of prednisone a day for about, about three months uh, until I told them, I said, look, you know, this isn't really, that's not really working for me. My, and, right. and they also took, you know, blood tests. So my creatinine was about 4.0. So my, my wow. baseline, uh, you know, preseason physicals for the Spurs was about 1.5 to 1.6, which is a little high, but not, not terrible, but now it was like 4.0. And so that was, you know, taking its toll on me. I just, uh, you know, was feeling a little lethargic, obviously, um, retaining a lot of water. Uh, the 80 milligrams of prednisone was, uh, you know, that was the worst thing actually that I went through maybe during my entire, uh, you know, journey with kidney disease. Uh, you know, I, I had just been traded to Detroit. Uh, I wanted to make a good impression when I got there. I worked out really hard. I mean, I was working out two hours a day, um, sometimes twice a day. And I gained about 20 to 25 pounds of just fat, you know, that wow. I couldn't, that I couldn't control because of the, because of the prednisone. Uh, so when I got off prednisone, finally, uh, heading into that first season in Detroit, uh, you know, I had a lot of uh, aches and pains, you know, coming off of that, uh, can the, just coming off of prednisone alone can be, uh, you know, uh, pretty tumultuous. And so, you know, I had a lot of aches and pains, uh, my joints hurt, <laughs> uh, my back, you know, feet, everything just from coming off that, uh, the steroid and, and, uh, Plus, it was cold in Detroit too. I joke with everybody. You know, I'm a Tucson boy. My weather, my my winters <laughs> are 75 degrees, and now I'm right. in five degrees every day. Yeah, so that was a that was a tough adjustment for me. Uh, but I, uh, fortunately, I got traded back uh, to San Antonio. Uh, my creatinine was relatively under control. It was about um, 2.5. Uh, I was put on cyclosporin for a long period of time, and and I was able to. Uh, play um taking you know some uh you know uh, um, anti-rejection obviously cyclosporin and uh for a long period of time so i was able to play until uh 99 and that's when my disease just rapidly progressed and okay. i noticed during that season it was about march of that season uh, i'd wake up in the middle of the night i was constantly going to the bathroom just uh i had to urinate like every hour on the hour, I wouldn't get any sleep. And uh, I figured something was wrong. So I, that's when I went to the doctor again. Well, they, they were monitoring me pretty regularly, but uh, not as much. And so I went to the doctor again. And uh, at that time, my creatinine had spiked from you know 2.5 to around seven. And, and my doctor, I remember he said, well, uh, I think we need to take a kidney biopsy. And you're going to be out for about two weeks. And I said, no, I said, let's, let's, let's do it after the season. I don't want to draw any attention uh, to what's going on with me. I just want to continue to play. And I don't want people to look at me differently in the locker room if they know that, you know, I'm going through something. Uh, and, and so, you know, as the playoffs went on, my creatinine started to, you know, continue to rise. 
So even after we won the championship in 99, when I came back, uh, I immediately went in for testing, ultrasound my kidneys, blood test. And at that point, uh, my creatinine was about 9.6. So it was really high. Should have been on dialysis, you know, rightfully so. But uh, the doctor said at the time, hey, you need to, you know, you just think about getting a transplant or go on dialysis. And so that's when I called my family, uh, told them the situation. And uh, my mom, my two brothers, and my dad uh, were all willing to get te tested. As a matter of fact, my dad was a med tech at St. Mary's Hospital in Tucson, and he was the one who drew everybody's blood. So wow, it was unbelievable! A, it was a total family affair. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it was it was about uh, you know from ninety three, sorry ninety two, ninety three to ninety nine is when I was you know really you know suffering the the effects of chronic kidney disease. For reference. Um... A creatinine of four, which is a marker of how well your kidneys are working, is not good, y'all. A creatinine of 9.6 is <laughs> terrible. <laughs> and I mean that with all due respect, Sean. <laughs> that yeah, is, yeah. right? So you see, yeah. so you can physically measure um, the deterioration of your kidney disease. At any point, did any... Did you fail a physical at any point? Did the team doctors, like, were they all in the know? Like, how were you able to get traded with this uh, medical condition? Well, you know, I, I had tried to get traded out of Detroit and go to Houston. And I sat in my hotel room for two days while the Houston doctors mulled back and forth and they came back and I failed that physical uh, because my creatinine was uh, so high at the time. And it wasn't even at its highest point. You know, it was probably 2.5 to three, somewhere in there. And they basically told the Rockets that, you know, this guy is not going to play uh, very much longer and he may not even be around you know he's got the, the debilitating kidney disease and so i failed that physical had to go back to detroit and uh what got me back to san antonio is that i was familiar with the organization uh, they were familiar with my condition uh, they were willing to take a chance on me again uh, you know greg popovich came back he was an assistant coach for a long time uh, when i was no, or assistant coach for about three years uh, with me, my first stint and pop and I formed a great relationship and pop came in as the general manager for the Spurs and traded back for me. And so that, you know, they were willing to take that chance. They knew I had kidney disease. Um, I told them I could play. They, you know, I still uh, felt relatively healthy. I mean, there were, there were times that I didn't feel my best when I took the court. I mean, uh, you know, that's just a byproduct of, having high creatinine. There were times that I walked out on the court to start a game and I had water in my legs. You know, I could feel uh, my legs were swollen to, to start a game and had pitting edema at the start of, of, of games. Uh, but for me, I just, I didn't think about that. You know, I just kind of felt like I was invincible at the time, which is not the right way to think about it. But at the same time, I just said, well, uh, you know, I'm not going to really let this slow me down. I'm going to continue to do what I do until I can't do it anymore. But, you know, right. the Spurs took a chance on me. And, and that's how I got back to San Antonio. For sure. Because I could imagine as a as a young person, especially as a professional athlete, there are many people who are feeling like I'm 100% invincible. I'm going to either ignore the doctors or I don't feel like I need to get checked. 
But, you know, I think that you were incredibly fortunate in so many ways that you were in the position that you were in as a top athlete to have doctors around you who were kind of monitoring your monitoring your condition. Have you ever thought about like, what if this had happened like before the draft? Right. Like, like right. what if you know what I mean? Like, do you ever think about that? You know, I don't. I I, I really don't. Um, I mean, I've I, I think I already had enough issues going in the draft. When you know the scouts were scared of my knee, that that was the biggest thing. Uh, I mean, the, the NBA Combine. I mean, I basically had every team doctor come over and do the 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 test where they you know take your thigh and your shin bone and you know move them back and forth to see how stable my knee was. I mean, it's literally every doctor, and so. I uh, already had that going against me. So if I had to have this pop up, I mean, there's who knows? I mean, I, who knows where I would have been drafted? Yeah. So, yeah, I fortunately, you know, I, I was lucky to land with San Antonio. And, and uh, I, you know, I don't think about the what ifs. Um, when you landed with San Antonio, uh, you actually had some of your best professional seasons. I believe you were an all star. You averaged over 20 points a game uh, one season. I, I remember as a child watching you, <laughs> watching you play at such. <laughs> now you make me fool. Cool, right, right. At such, an, at such a high level. Like it was just an amazing uh, experience. At what point, being at kind of the peak of your career, did you decide that you needed to get a kidney transplant? Well, that was, uh, that was 99. And after that season, uh, you know, there was, there was no other choice. I mean, I, uh, you know, even throughout the playoffs, there were times that I just felt really tired. Uh, you know, I try not to let that affect me throughout the course of the game. I didn't, you know, just kind of block that out mentally. Uh, but away from that, um, you know, I could feel just really tired and lethargic pretty much every day. Uh, you know, I uh, was constantly being monitored by the doctors. Actually, through that that time, uh, the team doctors were somewhat aware of my situation. So before games, at halftime, and after games, they're constantly checking my blood pressure. Uh, I was going in for blood tests. Uh, you know, maybe every other week just to see uh, you know the progression. And so, yeah, I, I uh, you know I was aware that. 99 could be my last chance, my last season uh, to to play. And so, you know, faced with that, you know, I was just going to go out there and, and do whatever I could on the court. And, and, and I, you know, none of my teammates knew what I was going through because again, I didn't want, you know, the guys to look at me differently. Uh, you know, guys like Avery Johnson, who, you know, is Mr. Accountability. You know, if you're supposed to be in a position to cut off the baseline or help, you're supposed to be the help defender you know, we need, I need to be there. I don't need somebody feeling sympathetic for me if I'm, you know, right, not in the right position or I make a mistake or I'm missing shots. I don't need guys thinking in the back of their mind, you know, poor him. I didn't want any of that. I just wanted them to look at me the same. So uh, those guys really didn't know what was going on with me at the time. Uh, only, only the doctors uh, had any idea, but at that point it was pretty, you know, apparent that after the season, I was going to need a kidney transplant, and then we we're going to go from there. At what point did the guys know? Did they know when you were, when you, after surgery, right before surgery? Like, at what point did uh, you I, have to we, spill the beans? Yeah, well, we, we had to hold a press conference, and basically, you know, the Spurs, I was at a press conference with the Spurs, and we announced that I needed a kidney transplant. And, you know, that was one time, you know, 
I've said it before that that was one time where it really, you know, uh, brought everything into perspective for me because, you know, we're in the room and uh, the doctor says, well, you know, Sean's come to a point where he needs a kidney transplant. And it was like a, like a murmur, like people were like, you know, just like it was this uh, big announcement. And, you know, for me, I was just, I kind of take things in stride. I don't get too dramatic about anything, but when just hear the reaction in the room at that time, I was like, Ooh, okay. <laughs> That's pretty serious. Um, yeah. You know? And so I think everybody, uh, you know, at that point, you know, pretty much my teammates, everybody in the city and people that pay attention to NBA basketball knew. Uh, and who was your donor? Right. So there's a couple ways that people get donors. People can get a donor for someone who recently passed away. Most uh -huh. of the time you want to make sure that you get a donor from someone who's 100% a match. And that person tends to be a family member. So who was the donor uh, for you who provided you with uh, with your kidney? That was my brother, my brother, Noel, who, you know, Noel was my uh, sports wingman my my entire life. You know, he was uh, he was my catcher in baseball. You know, he was the guy who was out there, you know, shagging balls for me when I was uh, shooting. And he was there when I first dunked the ball. You know, he's constantly feeding me passes when I was trying to dunk. So my brother was, you know, he was always around helping me out. He, he's about a year and a half older. And so uh, when I we all got tested. My mom was actually a match on three out of six markers, but Noel was a match on five out of six. And obviously being younger, they opted for uh, my my brother's kidney. And when I called my brother, he said, hey, this is what I was you know, put here for. I'm, I'm ready. And he, he never hesitated, not even for a second. And, and for my brother, you got to understand, my brother hates needles. I mean, <laughs> he's not the only one right he i mean that's his thing like he he hates needles and he had to get poked and prodded on and have all these tests run you know they figure which kidney they're going to take uh they had to take his blood uh, over and over again just to uh, check for all kinds of things and so uh you know he his actions were really heroic to me um he was just uh, amazing throughout the and you know entire process and, uh, you know, it's, it's not easy, uh, to ask somebody, you know, for a kidney, but, you know, we we're, my brothers, we were tight. And so, uh, it wasn't that hard for me, but I was still, you know, kind of nervous. It's just like, Hey, you, you know, you, can you give me a kidney or do you, I mean, you know, you, it's not every day that you're asking you, Hey, Hey, can I borrow some money? Can I do this? <laughs> hey, can you give me, can you give me a kidney? That's right. a whole different thing. Yeah. So, um, you know, he was um, he was absolutely amazing. It seems like y'all were already close, but how did the kidney transplant uh, impact, if at all, your relationship with him? I don't think it impacted it at all, really. Uh, you know, I don't know. There there wasn't really a way to make us closer. You know, we we were always each other there for each other, and uh, you know, my brother. I think the the biggest thing for him is. You know, he's told me several times how proud he was, you know, to see me be able to take the court again and play and uh, resume my career when it looked like my career would be over. And so, you know, I always joke with people that my brother didn't play in the NBA, but part of him did. Oh. You know, I was able to come oh. back and, and play. And so he was, uh, 
you know, he, he, you know, he, his actions helped me return to the court and play for another year and a half after and, you know, become the first professional athlete uh, to come back and play uh, with a major organ donation. So, you know, he, he was a huge part of that, obviously. That fact that you just stated is absolutely surreal. I put that into perspective. The first professional athlete who has ever returned to any professional sports court, any professional sports environment after an organ transplant. That's that's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, and, you know, I didn't set out to do that either. I, you know, that wasn't my goal. My goal was to get back on the court because I still wanted to play. You know, I was still relatively young. Uh, and I felt like if I'm healthy, why couldn't I go out there and play? What, what would, you know, what would be the obstacle, the hurdles? What would, what would be the opposition to that? Uh, and, and fortunately, fortunately for me, there wasn't much actually. The doctor told me that he had people that remained active and they, uh, they did all kinds of things, even hazardous sports after an organ transplant, you know, people that rode horses or were motorcycle riders or, you know, you know, things of that nature. And so, uh the the doctors didn't have any problem with it the the nba and the and the team they were very hesitant and made me jump through a bunch of hoops and sign a bunch of waivers but and i totally understood that uh but for me i just wanted to get back and play and i you know also wanted to show people that this is not the end i mean you know i had to face adversity before with overcoming my knee injury and this was just another form of, of adversity that i had to face and you know, I, for some reason, I just relished the challenge. And so I wanted to get back and, and, and play again. Uh, it seems as if not only did you relish the challenge to play again, but it seems like now you've taken on a different hat and you're relishing the challenge of becoming a health advocate, right? And I know that you serve as a kidney coach. Can you just tell us a little bit about your work as a kidney coach and your work surrounding uh, chronic kidney disease advocacy? Well, you know, March is National Kidney Month, so I'm I'm glad that I'm on. I know March is about the end, but uh, you know, we're I've, I've teamed up with Fresenius Kidney Care uh, to just help spread awareness about chronic kidney disease. I mean, you've heard a lot of my story, and you know, my because I'm a professional athlete and I have this platform, uh, people get to hear my story. But there are so many people out there that are undergoing or suffering from the same condition. You know, kidney disease affects about 37 million American adults, and that's 15% of the, the population. And nine out, of 10, nine out of 10 adults don't even know they have it. It's just like me, I, you know, at 25 years old, I'm playing professional basketball, and I think I'm perfectly fine, and all of a sudden, here's this uh, chronic kidney disease. And, and the problem is, it's a silent disease. It only presents symptoms when it's advanced. And so a lot of people have no idea that they could, uh, you know, get in front of this and go through uh, or or have care which prevents their disease from progressing. And so it's uh, a perfect opportunity for me to get the word out, uh, spread the word about uh, kidney disease, and especially uh, with Black Americans because we're three times as likely to suffer from chronic kidney disease as white Americans. So for us, it's a it's a, a epidemic of, of monumental proportions. And so there are a lot of people that could 
get in front of this right now and get the treatment that they need and not have to undergo dialysis or a kidney transplant if they only knew. And so that's why, you know, for me, it's like, it's imperative for me to get out there and spread the word. Uh, you know, I'm going to do whatever I can and uh, talk to people. And, and doc, it's, it's not just this, it's not just this month. It's every time I'm in the arena, you know, I have people come up to me and tell me their stories, people on the street that tell me their story. And so, you know, I just tried it, trying so hard to spread the word and let people know to be aware, go to your doctor, ask questions, uh, get tested for chronic kidney disease. Uh, if you're Black American, if you suffer from high blood pressure or diabetes, uh, it's imperative that you talk to your doctor about kidney disease. Uh, I mean, it is absolutely vital to your your health and to your life. It's so amazing that you've mentioned some of the comorbidities, some of the other conditions, the underlying conditions that lead to chronic kidney disease and how this conversation that we're having is so much bigger than just your kidneys, right? Like we have mm -hmm. to address, especially in the Black community, these rising rates of diabetes, the rising rates of hypertension, and mm -hmm. all of the trickle-down effects of that, right? These, right. you know, diabetes, high blood pressure, it doesn't just impact your kidneys, but it, in, it, it impacts your arteries, it impacts your heart, it leads to heart attacks, stroke, and a slew of other conditions. So right. this is a much bigger conversation than just, you know, chronic kidney disease. And I think that you taking this step to be at the forefront of health literacy and advocacy is very ad admirable and something that I hope that other professional athletes and just people with a platform in general, I hope it's a step that, uh, that they want to take. Yeah, I, I, I really do too. And, uh, you know, when I talk about some of these comorbidities, I mean, I talked about high blood pressure earlier, having high blood pressure at 11 years old, you know, in the black community growing up, I mean, everybody has high blood pressure. <laughs> I mean, yeah. was there somebody in my family, maybe my brother Noel was the only one that didn't have high blood pressure in my family. And, you know, it's something that's kind of dismissed as, oh, you know, I got to watch the salt because of my blood pressure. Right, right. That kind of thing. And it's kind of discarded. And, uh, you know, I'm one that I'm a little obsessive compulsive about things. So when I got sick, uh, I went down the rabbit hole. I looked at everything. I researched everything. And just the effects of high blood pressure, I cannot get it across to people enough. The damage that high blood pressure does to your body is so incredibly significant. And just to discard it by saying, oh, you know, I got to watch my salt and that that's it is not enough. High blood pressure, like you said, causes heart attacks, strokes, um, kidney disease, I mean, just wreaks havoc in your body. It's something that should not be taken lightly. Right. I, you know what? When I have these conversations with patients, one of the things that I keep thinking about is I think about uh, how we normalize our pain. Uh, I think about how we think that part of having a warrior spirit is to simply live with these medical conditions, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and And when you're living with these medical conditions, you have to ask yourself, like, do I want to live with a leg amputation? Do I want to live with poor eyesight? You know, do right. I want to live with chest pain? And we don't need to live that way. And, and I think that the importance of early detection uh, is one that's kind of couched in your story, right? The fact mm -hmm. that you were detected early and you were able to do something about it is a story that I think can resonate with a lot of people. 
um, regardless of whether or not they are dealing with chronic kidney disease, I think we want to live comfortable and healthy lives. And part of that is early detection and making sure that we are seeing our doctors regularly, that we're having these conversations with one another, that families are having conversations about high blood pressure and how that has run in our families uh, for generations. Too often, especially as Black people, we are allowing these um, kind of innocuous uh, health conditions run amok in our families, but nobody yeah. wants to talk about it. No one wants right. to have that conversation, right? So-and-so right. died and no one wants to talk about it. So it's very important that we're not just talking about it with our friends, with our colleagues, but we're also having these conversations with our families. That's right. You know, there, there are no excuses anymore. No. Uh, you know, medical science technology has come so far, it's come so far. And there are so many uh, treatments uh, for people with kidney disease or high blood pressure and diabetes. And uh, you know, all the information is right there at your fingertips, you know, you know, staying active, uh, you know, exercising, eating a, a healthy diet or healthier diet. You know, we, we all want to cheat every once in a while and have, you know, that fried food and, and I'm no different, but, you know, you know, do, you know, mostly just try to take care of myself. So there's no excuse now. And there's no excuse to uh, blow off uh, talking to your doctor or going to see your doctor if you're concerned and, it, and, you know, all these core morbidities we talked about should not be kind of discarded or made light of. Absolutely. If we have viewers who want to learn a little bit more about your journey and about your work as a kidney coach for uh, Fresenius, where can they go? Um, that is a good question. We can always link it too <laughs> in the notes yeah. for the podcast as well. Um, I would say uh, if you go to Fresenius Kidney Care, uh, I, I know if you go to their website, I don't know, if, uh, I don't think my story, uh, much of my story is on there. Uh, but that's a, that's a great question. But if they go to, for, for, to Fresenius Kidney Care, that will link them to maybe some potential resources that they can use oh, yes. to help track their kidney disease, yes. which is really the most important thing, right? Learning a little yes. bit about your story, but also connecting people with those health resources. Um, yeah. One of the joys of doing uh, this podcast uh, is to remind people that you don't have to be a professional athlete, right, to get some of the help you need. There are free and low cost resources out there, but I always try to redirect people to that care. So, you know, if you go to FreseniusKidneyCare.com, uh, you can get access to all of the resources that you need. It doesn't take the place of actually seeing a primary care physician and getting checked up, but it at least starts that conversation. And that's really what we're trying to get at with people. So right. Sean, I want to thank you so much for spending some time uh, with us, uh, for leading the charge in kidney care health. Uh, we need more people like you to share your perspective on these really important topics. And I just want to let you know that you're welcome back anytime. Hey, you know, Dr. Charles, um. Uh, glad to do it. It's a, uh, you know, didn't wish for this platform, uh, but it was handed to me and I'm going to run with it because right. there, it's something, you know, it's a message that people need to hear and it's sorely needed in our communities in this country. Uh, and, uh, you know, you know, close to my heart, it's, you know, it's just a, a, a message that the black community needs to hear. Uh, Absolutely. We, we need to do a better job of taking care of ourselves. 
Absolutely. And maybe this isn't how you drew it up, but this is what you're meant on this earth to do. So I thank you so much for using your platform to get this really important message out. And again, you are welcome back anytime you'd like. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.